too divided. We need somebody to unify our country again instead of just being Democrats, Republicans and being nasty to each other. South Carolina Republicans head to the presidential primary polls for Saturday, February 24th. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. It is the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How are Ukrainians feeling as the war drags into year three? We love freedom too much. We love it more than they love war. So we will win. We'll also look back at a now-overlooked presidential primary that paved the way for modern partisanship. And as we continue focusing on the Oscars, we'll look at a genre the Academy Awards have traditionally ignored. Horror has consistently reflected where we are as a society. All that after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former President Donald Trump called himself a political dissident at the Conservative Political Action Conference. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Trump focused his speech on November, even as Republican voters head to the polls in South Carolina primaries. The former president received a raucous welcome from loyal supporters attending the prominent gathering of conservatives known as CPAC. Trump barely mentioned the primaries in South Carolina. He spent the vast majority of his hour and a half speech focused on November and trying to paint President Biden as an incompetent leader. Trump also blamed Biden for his own legal challenges and sought to present himself as a freedom fighter for his supporters. I stand before you today not only as your past and hopefully future president, but as a proud political dissident, I am a dissident. Trump is returning to South Carolina this evening, where he's expected to defeat former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in her home state primary. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Oxon Hill, Maryland. And voters in South Carolina are at the polls today. NPR's Jung Yoon Han talked to some Haley supporters. Nikki Haley emphasized her time as governor while campaigning in South Carolina in the lead up to today's contest. And Haley's track record wasn't lost on Somerville voter George Higgins. He voted for Haley because he thinks she can unite the country. We're too divided. We need somebody to unify our country again instead of just being Democrats, Republicans and being nasty to each other. Accompanying him was Linda Higgins, who's been waiting for Haley to run for president since she served as governor. She knows it's an uphill battle for Haley against Trump. So this is actually the very first time I've ever voted in a primary because I feel that strongly that she needs the support. Haley has yet to win a primary contest. Jung Yoon Han, NPR News, Somerville, South Carolina. European leaders are standing with Ukraine on the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of the country. Terry Schultz reports in Brussels, Ukrainian flags have been raised and unfurled to mark the date. Some European Union leaders spent the day in Kyiv with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, while others joined demonstrators in the EU capital, where a flag almost 100 feet long was unfurled in front of the European Parliament. EU Justice Commissioner Didier Renders was there. It's very important to support Ukraine, but first of all to pay tribute to uh, the nation, to the Ukrainian people. Renders promised those assembled that the EU is working on justice for Ukraine to bring perpetrators of international crimes to account and to make Moscow pay for its destruction of the country. Some 260 billion euros in Russian central bank assets have been frozen worldwide to punish Moscow for the war. Most of that sum is located in the EU. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. And you're listening to NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Authorities are investigating an early morning house fire in Middleborough that left a girl dead and three others injured. Heavy flames coming from the first and second floors of the home on Pearl Street prevented firefighters from getting inside. State officials hope a new terminal for constructing offshore wind turbines can open in the next two years. The terminal will be built on the Salem waterfront at the site of a former coal and oil-fired power plant. Salem Mayor Dominic Pangallo hopes construction will begin later this year. It's going to grow our commercial tax base and, importantly, help us contribute to solving our, our energy crisis, ensuring energy independence and also a clean energy future to address the climate crisis we're in. The state's first site for offshore wind farm construction opened several years ago in New Bedford. Governor Maura Healy is calling on Stewart Healthcare to leave Massachusetts. The state had set a deadline of yesterday for the for-profit healthcare company to provide financial documentation, but what Stewart submitted was reportedly incomplete. Stewart runs nine hospitals in Massachusetts and recently disclosed severe financial problems. The company said in a statement that it recently finalized a $150 million refinancing agreement and is working to restructure its Northeast operations. Roxbury Community College will present scholar, author, and attorney Anita Hill with its inaugural Drum Major for Justice Award. The school's new honor is de- dedicated to activists and advocates for justice. Jackie Jenkins-Scott is the interim president of Roxbury Community College, and she says this award calls back to the community activism that led to the school's founding in the first place. This college was born from community activism. We have a, a big sign on one of our buildings that says, if it wasn't for community activism, you'd be on a eight-lane highway right now. <laughs> and Hill will receive the award tonight at a gala marking the college's 50th anniversary. It's 37 degrees at 5.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. South Carolina Republicans hold their primary today, and their choices are former President Donald Trump and their former governor, Nikki Haley. Trump appears poised to defeat Haley by a significant margin. That's according to several recent polls. NPR political correspondent Sarah McCammon has been talking with South Carolina voters and joins us now from Charleston. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Scott. You spy anything interesting from the voters at the polls today? We always buy interesting things on Election Day. Today in South Carolina, you know, some voters are certainly supporting their former governor. We attended several Nikki Haley rallies this week, and a recurring theme there from voters was that they're concerned about the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump. Many have supported him in the past, but they're tired of his rhetoric and his legal troubles. And Haley supporters see her as competent. They like the fact that she is younger than either Trump or President Biden. You know, Scott, our colleague uh, Jung Yoon Han met Linda and George Higgins at a polling site in Somerville outside Charleston earlier today. Higgins says she's an independent and she has voted for Trump in the past, but she really admired Haley's leadership of South Carolina. I just like the way she managed the state. Um, she did very well when we had, you know, hurricanes, disasters, things like that. And I've been waiting for her to run for president. That was Linda Higgins. George Higgins says he voted for Biden in 2020, but he's concerned about Biden's age, among other things, and he's supporting Haley this time. 
I think she's gonna, our best chance to unify and try to get everybody back on page instead of just being nasty to everybody. <laughs> But, you know, they are in the minority here on the whole. Trump is very popular, and it is difficult even for a native South Carolinian like Haley to overcome that. Right. He's won the first three states already. He looks likely to win again in South Carolina tonight. What are you hearing about Trump from voters? So the Trump supporters we've talked to, as you may expect, Scott, they liked him as president the first time. Another voter from Somerville, Sandy Mims, said she sees Trump as someone who gets results. I just think Trump's firm, you know, he's going to do what's best for America. And, you know, Nikki Haley doesn't have his record. Mims told me she or she told Jung Yoon she has some concerns about his temperament and rhetoric, but she still voted for Trump. And that has been one of Haley's arguments against him. She's referred to Trump as a bully. Mm -hmm. But for some voters, that is actually kind of an asset. I met Denise Moseman at a polling site today on John's Island near Charleston. She wouldn't say who she just voted for, but she did say she thinks Trump is the stronger candidate. I like the fact that the world is afraid of him. That helps him get his point across. Mosman said she sees Trump's multiple criminal indictments as illegitimate and said he's being persecuted, as he has also described it. She said she thinks highly of Haley, that Haley was a good governor, but she says that Trump has a proven track record. That's former Governor Haley is, of course, a South Carolina resident, which means that she voted today. You were there at the polling place. What did Haley have to say? Right. She voted on Kiowa Island with several members of her family, and she took a moment there to respond to something that Trump said yesterday while he was speaking to a group of black conservatives in Columbia, South Carolina. Trump suggested to them that black voters have, quote, embraced his mugshot and that his indictments have made him more appealing to the black community. Now, Haley said those comments will hurt Republicans in November if Trump is indeed the nominee. It's disgusting. But that's what happens when he goes off the teleprompter. That's the chaos that comes with Donald Trump. That's the offensiveness that's going to happen every day between now and the general election. This is a huge warning sign. Now, Scott, some of Haley's supporters agree with that analysis that Trump is weak and others are more afraid that Trump will win another term. And they say they're glad that Haley promised to stay in the race, at least through Super Tuesday. They think she provides an important alternative voice. And they're concerned about the direction that Trump has taken the Republican Party. But, Scott, some told us that they would still vote for Trump over Biden if it comes down to it in November. That's NPR's Sarah McCammon in South Carolina. Sarah, we will talk a lot more later tonight after the polls close. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now it's time for Trump's trials. This is a persecution. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Recently, two civil verdicts have hit former President Donald Trump where it may hurt the most, his wallet. First, a jury ordered Trump to pay writer E. Jean Carroll $83.3 million for defaming her. And then a judge ordered Trump to pay nearly $355 million plus $100 million in interest for engaging in fraudulent business practices. In total, Trump now owes about half a billion dollars in legal penalties. That is a staggering number, and it doesn't even include the amount of money that Trump is spending on his legal teams that work on these cases and the four criminal cases that he's also facing. So we are going to dive into the money surrounding Trump and his various cases today. I spoke with my colleague, senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, as well as David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist 
covers economics and tax issues and is the author of three books about Trump, including The Making of Donald Trump. I started by asking David how much money we think that Trump is worth and how much cash he may have on hand. I think we don't know how much he's worth. What we know is Donald always exaggerates and misleads. He testified a year ago that he has $400 million in cash. At the same time, he's out hawking uh, gold tennis shoes and perfume to raise money. So your guess is as good as mine. Domenico, politically and image-wise, how important is it to Trump that he is thought of as actually wealthy? I mean, it's hugely important. It makes everything that he is. You know, I mean, it, it was always sort of a thing in New York, for those of us who grew up in New York, that Trump wasn't exactly the person who was like the big Wall Street businessman tycoon. That really changed with Celebrity Apprentice for the rest of the country, where he was really selling himself on this image. But the fact is, you know, Trump, even before he got into this race, people knew who were looking at things like David and others that, you know, Trump had taken four different businesses into bankruptcy. Um, he wasn't as successful as he was always trying to paint himself to be, but it is a huge, hugely important part of his political image that he sold for his base. Let's talk about the fines. When does Trump actually have to pay that money and how tricky do you think it'll be for him to post the payments? Well, I think it'll be very tricky. On March 12th is the deadline for him to appeal the E. Jean Carroll case. And he either has to put up the $83 million or get a bond in some financial institution or person to back him. Uh, if he doesn't, then I've written a piece uh, for DC Report saying that uh, Trump may well file personal bankruptcy. And some other people who follow Trump think that, that is a distinct possibility. And Donald would spin that by saying, you know, this is forced on me by the Marxist fascist deep state. I mean, David, can you explain a little more for people who don't follow this as closely why bankruptcy would be an option to consider? Well, bankruptcy will not prevent the payment. If Trump does file, its purpose is strategic. It's to get him past November 5th, the day of the presidential election. And Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, you know, filed a personal bankruptcy, and it's now been more than two years. He hasn't paid a dime. This follows the number one legal tactic Donald has always uh, followed, delay, delay, delay. The second tactic, attack anybody who comes after you. You're completely pure and honest. They're utterly corrupt. A couple more questions on this before we shift gears. Um, is there a possibility that, in theory, Trump could have this money loaned to him from either an individual or an entity? Oh, he absolutely could if someone is willing to take that risk. And what we should be concerned about is if he were to borrow that money from uh, a foreign government or a foreign person, then would obviously be very obligated to if he became president. And of course, the person making the loan uh, probably would recognize that uh, when the appeals are over, if Trump loses and doesn't get any major modifications of the size of the awards, they're going to have to fight him in court to uh, get paid. Domenico, we need to talk about Trump's legal bills here. We're not talking about fees at this point. We are talking about the millions of dollars that he is racking up facing multiple criminal cases, multiple civil cases. How much money has Trump spent so far, and where is that money 
coming from. What we've noticed is a pattern where Trump is getting a lot of money from small donors, from kind of these MAGA voters, um, mostly around these uh, news events of when he either makes an appearance at court or, um, you know, there's something that happens, like the mugshot that came out during um, the, the the case in, in Georgia where he was booked. That one day was where he raised actually the most money in any single day because he's sending these emails to people to say, hey, uh, the witch hunt is after me. Give money. Uh, let's stop them from coming after me because they're really trying to come after you. That's where a lot of the money is coming from. It's filtering to not just Trump's campaign, but different uh, PACs that are supporting him. And then those PACs are actually paying a lot of his legal bills. In 2023, $50 million came from those other groups uh, to help support him in paying those legal bills. In fact, in January, the groups all around Trump, including his campaign, raised only about $13.8 million, which is about $3 million less than Nikki Haley, uh, his rival for the Republican nomination, that she was able to raise in January. And almost one out of every $4 that were spent went toward legal fees. I understand this is allowed, that you can take money that people give you to run for president and use it to pay your legal fees. Are there limits to this? I mean, is this yet another instance where he's pressing the limit of what is allowed, or is this just standard practice? It's definitely not standard practice. Uh, We could say he's pushing the limits or that he's operating in a space that uh, goes beyond the limits, but that there's no enforcement really from the Federal Election Commission. A big piece of this here is that the FEC allows you to spend money on legal fees if it arises from the campaign. That's why when you hear Trump, listen very carefully to when he talks about this. He was asked about this uh, last month about, you know, using fees. He says, I haven't done anything illegal. These are all political cases. It's a stretch, but there's not a lot that the FEC can do because it's really been so hobbled over the years. That's David K. Johnson, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who covers economics and tax issues and Trump's finances. Thanks, David. Thank you. And also, as always, NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thanks, Domenico. You got it, Scott. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Becoming a Man at ART, a new play from acclaimed author P. Carl and Tony Award-winning director Diane Paulus, now through March 10th amrep.org, and German International School Boston's Fast Track, accelerated language learning for students new to German. Virtual Info Night, February 28th, gisbos.org. Listeners have the chance to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and Community Advisory Board. Visit wbur.org slash open meetings if you would like to find out more. Stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour and at 7 tonight for live special coverage of today's Republican presidential primary in South Carolina. WBUR supporters include the Davis Museum at Wellesley College. Lorraine O'Grady's exhibit, Both And, is free Tuesdays to Sundays through June 2nd. wellesley.edu slash davismuseum. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The body of the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been released to his mother a week after he died in a penal colony in northern Russia. The cause of the 47-year-old's death still hasn't been determined. In Britain, junior doctors are on strike for the 10th time over pay. The five-day walkout started this morning. The British Medical Association wants a 35 percent pay raise for what they say has been years of being underpaid. But officials say that's unreasonable.
And Flacco, New York's iconic owl who escaped from a zoo a year ago, has died. The Wildlife Conservation Society, which operates the zoo, says he collided with a window. The group says between 90,000 to over 200,000 birds are killed each year after colliding with building glass. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, who, along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Today, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine enters its third year. And on this anniversary of the start of the war, it's worth stepping back and noting that neither Russia nor Ukraine has made progress on its goals, despite hundreds of thousands of casualties on both sides. Russia has failed to occupy all of Ukraine, and Ukraine has failed to retake all of the land occupied by Russian forces. But as Ukraine runs low on ammunition and weapons, with resupplies from the United States and other allies more in doubt than ever, Russia is going on the offensive in Ukraine's east. Joining us to discuss this is NPR's Kyiv correspondent, Joanna Kakissis. Hey, Joanna. Hey, Scott. So tell us how Ukrainians are observing this anniversary today. So, Scott, it's a somber day. Ukrainians are very proud that their country is still defending itself against a much larger enemy with a much larger arsenal. But there is just a sense of exhaustion and loss. And you could really sense that at a rally in central Kyiv today where many were demonstrating to highlight the cases of thousands of Ukrainian prisoners of war. Here's Anton Tarasov. He's a 49-year-old soldier who is in a cave on a short break from the front lines to see his elderly mom. I'm not even sure to who this is more difficult, to the civilians or to the soldiers. Uh, like my mom, for example, she's 80 years old. But we are stronger than Russians. We love freedom too much. We love it more than they love war. So we will win. And that's the sentiment of most Ukrainians we spoke to. But we also met some who were much more pessimistic, like Larisa Doposhia. Uh, she's 56, and she was at the rally, too. Her brother is a prisoner of war. And she says that the war has worn down Ukrainian unity. She's heard here through an interpreter. People were united. They were of one mind. And now people are divided. I go to rallies and give what I can to the armed forces. But some people don't support them. She says some Ukrainians question whether the fight is worth the loss of so many lives. And that's a big concern for Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, as this war drags on. Let's talk about Zelensky for a moment because communication has been such a strong suit of his throughout this war. How is he managing expectations for the coming year, which again is going to be the third year his country's at war? That's right. Well, today he tried to project strength and give Ukrainians a sense that their Western allies still have their back. He held this press conference today with the leaders of Canada, Italy, and the European Union. Here's European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen promising that Europe will continue to stand by Ukraine. With more financial support, more ammunition, more training for your troops, more air defenses, 
and more investment in Europe's and Ukraine's defense industries. Now, President Biden wasn't there, but he released a statement saying that the U.S. remains committed to holding Russia accountable for its aggression and also to providing critical assistance to Ukraine. How do Ukrainians feel about Western allies at this point? Well, Scott, every Ukrainian I've met is grateful for any assistance from the West, especially military assistance. Their argument is you give us the weapons and we will do the rest. But, you know, Ukrainian soldiers are now running very low on weapons, especially ammunition, and it's having an effect on the battlefield. Uh, for example, a week ago, the Ukrainians lost the strategic town of Avdivka in the east after a battle that took months. And the Russians outgunned them. They repeatedly dropped bombs. Uh, the Ukrainians struggled to respond, and so they had to pull out. And that's given Russians the momentum in the land war. They're advancing along several points on the front line now. Mm -hmm. Anything positive to say about Ukraine on the battlefield at this point? You know, yeah, surprisingly there is. Uh, the Ukrainians have managed to push back the Russian Navy from parts of the Black Sea. Uh, they've used sea drones to do that. It's made the Black Sea a lot safer to transport Ukrainian agricultural exports, which Ukraine says are now back at pre-war levels. Uh, Zelensky says his main priority for 2024 is to make sure Ukraine procures more weapons, especially long-range missiles that can hit Russian military targets. And he says that needs to happen quickly because Russia's arms production is increasing, and the Kremlin is getting additional weapons from North Korea, according to Western military officials. That's NPR's Joanna Kakissis from Kiev. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Scott. This week, Missouri prosecutors charged two men with murder following a mass shooting that took place at Kansas City's Super Bowl victory celebration on Valentine's Day. Lisa Lopez-Galvin, a popular local radio personality, was killed, and about half of the 22 people injured were children who had come out to see the Chiefs celebrate their second straight Super Bowl victory. Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas spoke to my colleague Juana Summers about it. I was someone who brought my own family to this event. I was someone who had to flee at a shooting. I saw big, giant football players and eight- or nine-year-old children and all types of people running away from harm. But unlike many other high-profile mass shootings where one person targets multiple victims, Jackson County Prosecutor Gene Peters-Baker said this shooting began because one of the men charged turned an argument into a violent event. That argument very quickly escalated to Mays drawing his firearm, a handgun. Almost immediately, almost immediately, others pulled their firearms. And while the location was unique and the national attention was unique, that key fact really wasn't. It's not uncommon. We have mass shooting around here all the time. Some make the news, some don't. That's community activist Pat Clark. Kansas City has long been plagued by gun violence. In 2023, the city saw its highest murder rate. Classy Alcine heads KC Common Good, an organization that works to prevent violence in communities before it starts. She was at that Super Bowl celebration. I was at the rally, and I did see thousands of people running towards me. And I didn't really know what was going on. It was very scary and chaotic. And as I'm processing it now, it's it's so hard because what we experienced as a community was senseless violence. The focus of Alcine's work is on empowering and supporting the Kansas City neighborhoods most affected by violent crime. Violent crime is not new to Kansas City, but the Super Bowl parade is probably likely the first time that many Kansas Cityans have been directly impacted by that level of violence. So it was eye-opening 
moment for people across the Kansas City community that isolated acts of violence can do and that they impact our entire region. Mass shootings like the one that took place at the Kansas City Victory Rally command the public attention. But there's been an ongoing epidemic of gun violence in Kansas City that has not gained that kind of attention. In 2023, the number of homicides reached a record high. This coming at a time when many other U.S. cities have seen a decline. Groups like KC Common Good have been working on the ground with community leaders and government officials to try to prevent violence. Classy Alcine is the CEO of KC Common Good. We called her up to talk about it. On the main page of your website, it says KC Common Good wants to unite the community to address the root causes of violence. Can you break that down for us a little bit? And and speaking specifically of Kansas City, what are those root causes? What are you working on? So in Kansas City, the root causes of violence are lack of access to resources, repeated family trauma, concentrated poverty, high unemployment rates, and then high school dropout rates. I mean, a lot of that are that are overwhelming problems that have very long, long causes and are and are tough to 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 individually tackle. Can you talk about how you start to get at them from that community level? Yes, from the community level, the first thing we started with was employing young people in the summer because we knew that we needed to expand the ecosystem to support young people, mentor them, have skills training, professional development and really eliminate silos between employers and youth. Um, And what we have seen, uh, a story that I'll share with you, we had a young man, I'll never forget, he was 15 years old, and I encouraged him to apply uh, because he had a big personality and he, I just saw much, so much light in him. And I said, you know, you should really apply. And he said, Miss Classy, don't worry about me because I'm not gonna live till I'm 16. This is a 15-year-old young man who didn't believe he was going to live to be 16. How did you respond? I said, I know you have greatness. And I know that you want to do something different. And this is the opportunity. And that we care about you and that we love you. And that this is an opportunity for you to show and live out your personal dreams. And when I saw him after the program had ended, he had so much confidence. And he, at the time, was interning with um, KC Pet Project. And he worked in the HR department and he had stated, um, you know, working in HR is like being a therapist to employees. And he really, really loved it. (laughs) And I just love that. And, Three years later, he is graduating from high school and he wants to go to school for business administration. So he has lived past his own life expectancy, which is the power of um, addressing the root causes with our youth. That's a really great outcome from that first conversation to now. Yeah. When when you're talking about working in the community, can can you tell me the types of people that you're coordinating with here? Who are the, the leaders that you're reaching out to and planning with? Yes, so KC360 is a comprehensive community-based approach to reducing gun violence and building stronger community relations, increasing access to education and jobs. You know, it really is the neighborhood associations themselves, the community members, um, the faith community, the business community, the health systems, law enforcement, community leaders, 
uh, city officials. I mean, we're bringing, you know, 10 different subgroups of uh, folks together into one room every single week. Can you just give us a sense of what these meetings are like, what specific things people are talking about, what 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 the questions you're, you're raising and trying to address are on the ground level? I think what is key from 360 meetings is we always start out um, with a report from the police department on what's currently going on around non-fatal and fatal shootings. And we really stress building police and community relationships. And then another big bucket that's talked about a lot is personal conflicts that turn into gun violence. Also reinvesting into high crime areas because the neighborhoods that we work with have been disinvested in for decades and we have to reinvest. Is, is there a specific example you can give from that? Well, I think the Santa Fe neighborhood is a perfect example. I mean, we were able to, you know, focus on shifting that neighborhood from a space of hopelessness to empowerment and really recognizing that over the years, many neighborhoods on the east side of Kansas City, including Santa Fe, have experienced a disinvestment in resources. However, the many positive things happening are due to the investment of numerous partner organizations working together and building trust. And that takes a collaborative effort. And I think that people forget about that. We know that when you bring in affordable housing, you bring in healthcare, you bring in entrepreneurs, you bring in businesses, that's when neighborhoods start to be uplifted because you're on the same playing field. And then that benefits the entire region because everyone can live a thriving, prosperous life. They can go to school. They can get good paying jobs and not feel like they have to go out of their neighborhood to get resources. Yeah. Let's talk about guns for a, a minute, though, because, you know, one of the aspects of the shooting at the, at the Super Bowl parade and rally was the fact that once the violence started, multiple people you know, withdrew weapons. Lots of people had guns on them that day. Missouri has pretty permissive gun laws, no background checks, no permits needed for concealed carry, no red flag laws, which, you know, allow for temporary firearm removal. How much harder does that make the work that you're doing? How much of a factor is that? It makes it very hard because when you have too many legal guns on the streets, that's where we have an argument that turns into someone losing their life. And what I believe is it is our job to bring these community-based approaches and we've started it, right? And so it is a matter of us working together regardless of anyone's position on gun laws themselves because this is about the community coming together around that main focus. But yes, there are definitely things we should be doing and advocating for to make sure that the folks who should not have guns do not have them. Classy Alcine is the CEO of KC Common Good. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. If you love someone, learn how to fight with them. That might feel counterintuitive, but it is the advice of world-renowned relationship researchers and clinical psychologists Julie Schwartz-Gottman and John Gottman. Pulling from four decades of research and clinical practice, the Gottman's new book, Fight Right, How Couples Turn Conflict into Connection, is a guide to some of the most common fights in relationships and how to work through them. 
Life Kit's Andy Tegel has more. Think about your last fight with your partner. How did it start? According to the Gottmans, the first three minutes of a fight tell you all you need to know about how that conflict will go. The way you bring up an issue determines the way the conversation will go 96% of the time and also predicts the future of the relationship. You heard that right. In a landmark 1999 study, John Gottman found that after observing just 180 seconds of a fight, he could determine, nine out of ten times, whether or not a couple would still be together six years later. What did he find exactly? When couples began a fight with negative emotions like criticism, contempt, defensiveness, stonewalling, what the Gottmans call a harsh startup, they weren't likely to go the distance. They start by presenting the issue as a defect in their partner's personality, which just leads the partner to become defensive, and it escalates very quickly into a standoff, an attack-defend standoff. But couples still need to get those feelings out, says Julie Schwartz-Gottman. Each person really deserves to express those emotions, but they have to express them in such a way that their partner can hear them, and they're not sabotaging. They're getting listened to. So when conflict comes knocking, Start soft. What that means is you point your finger not at your partner, but at yourself. The Gottman suggest a simple statement with three parts. Describe yourself, your feelings, and what you need. For example, let's say your mother-in-law is coming over for dinner, and you feel anxious about it because she always finds a way to criticize you. A harsh startup might sound like, Dear, your mother is a wart on the back of humanity. This kind of out-of-the-blue, no-context attack gives your partner no choice but to go on the defensive. A soft startup, on the other hand, begins with your own feelings. Honey, I'm really feeling nervous. There's the emotion. Then, part two, explain the situation or problem at hand. About your mother coming over to dinner tonight. She often finds something to criticize me for. That's the situation. And finally, part three, this one's the trickiest, you give your partner a positive need. As in, would you please stand up for me if she does that again? There's the positive need. That's how your partner can shine for you. This gentler approach, says Julie Schwartz-Gottman, creates space for your partner to better see your point of view and vice versa. And it's so important to understand that your partner is not your clone. They are a different human being with a different brain, a different internal world. And when you do that, hopefully, you'll find yourself even closer to your partner than before your fight. Because... Conflict really has a purpose. And the purpose is mutual understanding. For NPR's Life Kit, I'm Andy Tegel. This is NPR. And we thank you for spending part of your weekend with 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. In about 20 minutes at 6, stay with us for the Moth Radio Hour. And at 7 tonight, live special coverage of the results of the South Carolina Republican presidential primary. Nikki Haley is trying to upset Donald Trump, and it could be a pivotal moment in the 2024 election. 
34 degrees at 539, clear in the teens tonight, sunshine tomorrow 30, sunshine warmer on Monday 50s, and the same for Tuesday. Back to All Things Considered right after this. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, with John Proctor as the villain, a touching and bitingly funny new comedy, now through March 10th at the Huntington Calderwood Pavilion, HuntingtonTheater.org, and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking classes, technique and regional cuisine series, and more for all skill levels. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Volodymyr Zelensky West welcomed Western leaders to Ukraine to mark the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion. This as Ukrainian forces run low on ammunition and foreign aid hangs in the balance. U.S. military pharmacies around the world are struggling to dispense prescription medications after a cyber attack and are now filling them by hand. And a federal judge has barred the NCAA from enforcing its rules prohibiting name, image, and likeness compensation from being used to recruit athletes. The judge says the NCAA's prohibition likely violates federal antitrust laws and harms athletes. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow, and the year is 1976. Both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have their own liberal and conservative factions, and both parties prefer to avoid divisive social issues like abortion or fights over textbooks. A new narrative podcast explores how and why that all changed, by following the story of the 1976 presidential campaign. The unelected president, Gerald Ford, faced a challenge from a one-time actor considered too reactionary for voters of the day. That's Ronald Reagan. The podcast is Landslide. It's from Nuance Tales in partnership with member station WFAE and distributed by the NPR Network. The host and creator is journalist Ben Bradford. And in this preview from the series' third episode, he looks back to the roots of today's culture war, and how it would help save Reagan's campaign. Here's Landslide. But we'll stand. God's people have had to stand and be persecuted from the very beginning. A pastor shouted. And we'll continue to protest for Jesus Christ. Parents picketed. It's a moral issue and it's a spiritual issue. Trucks honked. Workers went on strike. Many coal mines were closed. Mothers sang. A community was torn by outrage. This was Kanawha County, West Virginia, 1974. The conflict was over new textbooks. There's things that I don't want my child to know, and when it gets ready, I'll teach it. 
books contained profanity, mentioned sex, and quoted Malcolm X. The argument by parents over their children's school books has caused demonstrations, beatings, closings of schools, bombings. Second day in a row, a sniper is fired at a school bus as a controversy over textbooks in public schools there continued. Protests and violence in Kanawha County went on for months. Local high school students said they thought the conflict was about whether they would read black authors. The Ku Klux Klan arrived and burned crosses. And a group of outsiders flew in to aid the protesters. A DC lawyer from a new think tank called the Heritage Foundation. A Californian representing what was ostensibly an anti-pornography group. Who elects the school board? And who pays for the textbooks? Soon, in a nondescript office building outside Washington, D.C., a printer buzzed. Out came a letter. Parents around the country found it in their mailboxes. Your taxes are being used to pay for grade school courses that teach our children that cannibalism, wife swapping, and murder of infants are acceptable behavior. Up in Boston, a bottle shattered. Protesters shoved. Children on school buses flinched. And they were throwing eggs at the window and trying to hit people with them. White parents had erupted against a plan to integrate schools. It involved busing children, sometimes across town. Let us go to our neighborhoods where our kids are safe. We want our kids safe. Just like in West Virginia, outsiders arrived to help the protesters. They came from organizations with names like the Conservative Caucus, the National Right to Life Committee. Again, in a nondescript office building outside DC, a printer buzzed. And parents read, Dear friend, are you as sick and tired of liberal politicians as I am? Force children to be busted, read. Force your children to study from school books that are anti-God, anti-American. The letter linked the anti-integration protests and the textbook protests. And then it asked for money. A coalition was coming together. The belief seemed to be that there was a vast untapped electorate that would respond to these appeals. Alan Crawford worked for a new magazine called Conservative Digest. His magazine, the letters, the outside groups, the protests, were all connected. They were like a forest of aspen trees. On the surface, they all looked individual, but they all shared the same DNA. The same names overlapped on their org charts. So you saw these organizations that were deliberately training young activists and polemicists and publicists were very successful. Most crucially, nearly all of these groups relied on that nondescript office building outside DC. Behind a locked door, guarded by multiple security systems, the printer buzzed as computers read millions and millions of names and addresses off of magnetic tape. It was all controlled by Richard Vigory. He helped birth a lot of these conservative organizations. Richard Vigory, conservative ideologue, direct male genius. This was not a secret. Richard plays a crucial role during that period of political history. David Keene was a Reagan campaign aide and a director of another right-wing organization, perhaps the largest tree in this forest, the American Conservative Union. Richard Vigory raised the money. He had mastered collecting and exploiting electronic data. He 
understood how people who'd supported one cause might give to another, how someone who opposed textbooks might be mobilized to join the fight against busing or abortion. And Keene says Vigory's letters, with their mentions of anti-God politicians and cannibalism, served a second purpose. They were a new form of media. In the mid-1970s, these groups and their movement became known as the New Right. The New Right conservatism. Uh, Richard Vigory, his organizations under his New Right movement. The New Right emphasizes the social issue and kind of inflaming passions. The New Right incited people around the nation who were angry about changes to society and culture. They were building a coalition based on backlash, on grievance, on what today we might call a culture war. And they were doing it with a very clear and explicit goal. The New Right wanted to take over the Republican Party. The nature of American conservatism was being deliberately changed. They succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. In the 1976 presidential race, the new right aligned behind one candidate who shared its goals and values. He could help them win control of the Republican Party, Ronald Reagan. When Reagan announced his 1976 run against Gerald Ford, new right activists flocked to his campaign as staff and volunteers. But by the spring of 1976, Reagan's bid looked like a failure. He'd lost five straight primaries. He was on the verge of conceding. What followed was one of the most remarkable, consequential comebacks in American political history. The new right swept in and jolted Reagan's campaign and political career back to life. But first, you have to understand just how dire the situation was. Ronald Reagan fighting to stay alive in the race for the Republican nomination. He has now lost every one of his head-to-head -head contests with the president. And no matter what Reagan does, Ford has been one step ahead. Reagan lost and lost. Five primaries in a row looked over. His campaign manager quietly called a meeting with Fords to discuss conceding. There was no choice. Frank Donatelli, an outside advisor, says the campaign was broke. The campaign was badly underfunded. I mean, virtually no money available. They'd poured everything into trying to beat Ford early. But it wasn't just that. A new campaign finance law had just gone to effect for this election, 1976, and it radically changed how campaigns raise money, and has ever since. And it created a federal election commission and a, a wide range of changes. The new law was designed as a reaction to Watergate. It put limits for the first time on how much any one individual could contribute. So the big donors just of years previous in the Nixon campaign uh, could not happen. So the campaign only had one option. Small donations were the coin of the realm. But gathering small donations was time-consuming. What would you need? Computers, printers, and lists of names to a degree the campaign didn't have. So Reagan shuttered offices. He laid off staff, except for a skeleton crew who worked without pay. One more primary, and it would finally be over. So the next primary up is North Carolina. I mean, this is your last shot. You know, you're throwing the kitchen sink in there. North Carolina is it.
Down in North Carolina, a printer buzzed. That was the start of a comeback in North Carolina by Ronald Reagan facing Gerald Ford. It ultimately became the closest presidential primary race in American history. And we were listening to a portion of the podcast Landslide from Nuance Tales and WFAE, which you can find on all podcast platforms. It's been over 30 years since a horror movie won Best Picture at the Oscars. It was 1992, the film Silence of the Lambs, starring Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Only a handful of horror movies have been nominated in various Oscar categories over the years, and an even smaller number have taken home awards. As we continue our Oscar coverage, NPR's Brianna Scott looks at the relationship horror has with the Academy. The horror genre has always been somewhat of an outlier during award season, thanks in part to its reputation. Horror in particular, I think, has had this reputation as second-rate. Second-rate skill levels, cheap scares, lots of gratuitous blood. Tanana Reeve Dew is an author and professor at UCLA. She says that the stereotypes about horror live on today, but over the last few decades... We're seeing a change in attitude toward horror, that people are realizing, oh, maybe there's more to this than jump scares. Film critic and writer Richard Newby agrees. Horror has consistently reflected where we are as a society. It's perhaps the most common way that we can kind of talk about what we're culturally afraid of. So movies like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where a group of teenagers stumble upon, okay, how do I put this lightly, an atypical family of cannibals. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was released in 1974, just before the end of the Vietnam War. It's very much like a reflection on Vietnam and this idea of trespassing where you don't belong. Or Night of the Living Dead from 1968, the movie that popularized the modern portrayal of zombies. They're coming to get you, Barbara. The movie's Black protagonist broke barriers at a time when racial tensions in the U.S. were fraught post-Jim Crow. Thematically so important about the invasion of the other, if you're a racist, or having a Black lead, the empowerment that Black people had been fighting for in the 1960s. There's also the 2023 Australian horror film Talk to Me, a tale of ghostly possession that soon turns into a study in dealing with grief and trauma. I can't see and feel everything on the other side. It's not up for any Oscars this year. Despite critical acclaim engrossing more than 90 million at the box office worldwide. It's actually a wise genre rather than a silly genre, a confrontational genre rather than an evasive genre. Adam Lowenstein is a film and media studies professor at the University of Pittsburgh. He says that long ago, movies in general were actually looked down upon, just like horror. A big idea behind the Academy Awards and its initial iteration all the way back in 1929 was as a form of legitimacy for an art form that was usually not considered art or legitimate. 
Now, the Academy hasn't completely ignored horror. And the winner is Norma Coke for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. William Peter Blatty for The Exorcist. Jordan Peele, get out. But there have been attempts to put those kinds of movies into categories outside the horror genre. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, billed as a psychological thriller. The Exorcist, branded as a religious drama. Get Out, a social thriller. It's a way of erasing horror as a genre marker and saying this is actually something else. It's something more elevated. It's something worth your attention as a potential award nominee. So take something like Sons of the Lambs. There is a big push to deem it as a thriller, which it is, no doubt. But it's hard to deny that it's not also horror and took cues from the slasher films that came before it. I mean, he's making a skin suit in that movie. Phil Nobile Jr. is editor-in-chief at Fangoria magazine. He argues the horror genre doesn't need to look for Oscars. Horror should be rattling you. Horror should be upsetting you. Horror should be pissing off the Oscars. And awards aside, horror movies do make bank on small budgets. The 1999 found footage film The Blair Witch Project grossed roughly $248 million worldwide. That's over 4,000 times the movie's original budget. If I had to have a choice between having an Oscar film or a film that made $100 million, I'll take the film that made $100 million. That's Tanana Rivdu again. She doesn't deny the impact an Oscar can have. She just thinks its power might be exaggerated. That Oscar isn't always as life-changing as people think it might be. I think about why I make movies, and, you know, it's never about the awards. Chad Valilla is a producer and one of the co-founders of Radio Science Productions, known for films like Ready or Not. If we don't find her and perform the ritual, we're all dead. Found her. And the recent Scream entries. For Valilla, it's the human connection between the audience and a horror movie that matters. Let's inspire them to be able to get through a day in their life that might feel like a 